what led me to realize that it could be a story was the realization that there was something universal about the story. You're listening to The Bee Podcast. Make friends, learn new things, and feel understood. Now here's your host, Sage Lally. Hey you, and welcome back to The Bee Podcast. I'm your host, Sage, and today I am beyond excited to have Joanna Rakoff on the podcast with me. Joanna is a writer and the author of My Salinger Year, which was just developed into a major motion picture starring Sojourney Weaver and Margaret Qualley. Joanna is also the author of A Fortunate Age, which won the Goldberg Prize for Jewish Fiction by Emerging Writers and the L Readers Prize and was a New York Times Editor's Choice and a San Francisco Chronicle bestseller. She has written for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Vogue, and other publications, and she currently lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Here is the back cover of My Salinger Year. After leaving graduate school to pursue her dream of becoming a poet, Joanna Rakoff takes a job as assistant to the storied literary agent for J.D. Salinger. Precariously balanced between poverty and glamour, she spends her days in a plush, wood-paneled office where typewriters still reign and agents doze after three martini lunches, and then goes home to her threadbare Brooklyn apartment and her socialist boyfriend. Rakoff is tasked with processing Salinger's fan mail, but as she reads the heart-wrenching letters from around the world, she becomes reluctant to send the agency's form response and impulsively begins writing back. The results are both humorous and motivating as Joanna, while acting as the great writer's voice, begins to discover her own. Joanna, hi. I'm so excited to have you. Sage, it's so nice to meet you. Hi. So I would love if before we get started, you could tell me a bit more about who you are and what you do. Absolutely. I am a writer. I am the author of two books, My Salinger Year, which is a memoir, um, which was just adapted into a feature film starring Sigourney Weaver and Margaret Qualley, um, and which I executive produced and um, was a consultant on. And I think this is no longer a secret, but I ghost wrote the screenplay. I'm pretty sure you were in the film for like one second, right? You were yes. walking to an elevator. And I, because I know what you look like, I was like pausing the movie and I was like, that's Joanna. Yes, I have a cameo in the yeah, movie. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> I loved that part. Yes, which was fun. Yeah, I got to have my makeup done at the same time as Sigourney and Margaret sitting there in the chair in between them, which was really fun. And then my first book is a novel called A Fortunate Age. Um, and I write for magazines and newspapers. I'm a longtime New York Times writer. Um, and yeah. That's me. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So I know that you were talking about my Salinger year. I'm curious because I know you wrote this memoir several years after the events actually happened. How did you write a memoir in such vivid detail about events that happened decades earlier? That is such a good question. And I'll just also say that right now I'm um, working on my next book which is overdue because of the pandemic. And it actually takes place in the distance. So it's a memoir. Um, it's called The Fifth Passenger. And it is about my childhood. And it moves forward in time. Like it also takes place now. Um, it's a much more complicated book than my Salinger year. 
And, um, and it's interesting because I've been thinking so much about memory and the ways in which certain events from your life are as vivid to you as things that happened yesterday. Um, and sometimes they're very pedestrian things like eating, like this is one memory. I have a memory of eating fried eggs early on a Sunday morning um, that had too much pepper on them with my mother and trying to choke them down um, and having to run out to Sunday school right afterwards and, you know, feeling kind of ill from all the pepper. And, you know, that probably happened many times. My mother loved pepper. So, but, um, but why do you remember certain things in kind of crystalline detail and others not? And with my sounder year, I actually wrote it many years after the experiences. I worked at the agency. Um, the book for listeners who don't know anything about it is about the year I worked at uh, New York's oldest and most storied literary agency. And I worked there in 1996. And I wrote the book largely in 2012. So a long time afterward. Um, and People often ask me, you know, did you rely on journals or letters? Um, did you, how did you recreate this world? And an odd and interesting thing is that I kept a journal religiously. I wrote in my journal every day, sometimes pages and pages and pages. And I wrote letters to friends. Um, you know, I was right out of college and my friends were all over the world in the Peace Corps, you know, in grad school. We wrote tons of letters to each other but I didn't have access to any of those um, for reasons I won't explain. You know, I didn't have access to letters I wrote to friends, some of them I'd lost touch with, who knows what, and I didn't have my journals. Um, but somehow that year, everything that happened that year was as vivid to me as, you know, what happened to me this morning somehow. And I think that it possibly has to do, this is just my theory. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just a person who's thought a lot about memory. I think it has to do with the novelty of those experiences and the intensity of them. That this was my first job and it was my first time truly living on my own. Um, I had had a year in between college and this job in which I was a graduate student in London but my college boyfriend was there with me and I had all sorts of people to rely on. And this was the first moment where I really had to fully survive on my own and figure things out. And somehow all of those experiences, everything that I did on a day-to-day -day basis felt huge. You know, just walking out of my office to buy lunch and oh, part of it was the freedom of it thinking, I can eat whatever I want for lunch. I live in New York City and I can eat anything for lunch, like anything that I could afford, basically. <laughs> and so I think that those experiences were kind of emblazoned on my brain. Um, and the other aspect of it, though, that I'll add is I was, as I said, writing letters about my life really every day. Um, this was a time before everyone had email and I had friends, you know, who were in really far-flung places like Morocco, what have you, um, who didn't have any access to email. So I was writing them letters, sometimes by hand, sometimes typing them on a typewriter. And I think the act of chronicling my experiences, and sometimes I would chronicle the same thing over and over for six different friends, 
made me remember them in a more comprehensive way than if I had not done so. So even though I didn't have access to those journals or those letters, simply the act of chronicling those experiences made me remember them better. Um, all that said, the last thing I'll say is that I still did an enormous amount of research. So I did a year of research before I wrote this book. I interviewed everyone that I had worked with. Um, I walked all the blocks that I had walked during that year, the neighborhood I lived in, the neighborhood I worked in. I went to all the places that I went to for lunch. Um, I interviewed my friends, my boyfriends. I did every, I, I sort of explored every possible avenue trying to remember my way back into that time. I researched what people were wearing during that year to make sure I got it right. So it definitely was a process of remembering my way back into that year. I like the way you, you said that, remembering my way back. I want to talk about Don. Do you feel like you really loved Don? I was attracted to him, I think, in part because he was so... I don't, I don't want to say radically honest because a lot of what he was saying was just complete and utter bullshit, but he just didn't care about anyone, supposedly. You know, he seemed to me this person who was living a life very different than the life that my parents thought I was destined for. You know, he didn't care about like earning money or status or anything. He, in his own mind, was committed to this very authentic way of being an artist um, but also he was really a part of like a particular downtown literary scene, you know, that was kind of like a holdover from the eighties um, that like sort of had crossover with like the world of zines. And, um, and I, I was kind of intrigued by that as a kid who'd grown up in the shadow of New York and my whole family was in, you know, on the Lower East Side. And I was aware of this world this kind of like literary visual arts kind of world, but I wasn't at all a part of it. And so he was kind of entrenched in it. And I was, I he kind of provided me with an entry point to it. But the other thing that attracted me to him is that I think I had dated, you know, a lot of just very nice, you know, guys who would now be, just, I went to Oberlin, you know, I was in very progressive social circles growing up. And I dated all these guys who like today or like five years ago would be called like woke, you know, who were like feminists and who were very sort of sweet. And Don, even though he, he himself had gone to an Oberlin-like school, Sarah Lawrence, and had been a philosophy major, he was kind of almost like a contrarian. Um, you know, he had ultra liberal politics, but he just was like, fuck everything, you know, and he just was almost, I don't know, like an existentialist or an anarchist in certain ways. And um, and he just felt like everything, like all so social mores, like monogamy, whatever, they're all stupid. And it rattled me in a way that I, I, I think I needed to be rattled in order to kind of move to a new place as a human. We've all had relationships that are super important to our lives, even if they suck. I've had, I, in my limited 23 years of life, have had relationships that I feel like I needed to have in order to grow. And so... I completely understand his role in the story and his role in your life. I more just wanted to hear what you found uh, attractive or interesting or exciting about him because um, I saw, we saw all of the, the shitty parts of him and 
the gruesome way that or the novel he wrote and I we learned more about the novel he wrote in your book and how and what it's about and the way you talked about it and oh Don I wanna I wanna ask you because I know you mentioned it how did you and Carol end up getting back together so I know that there's like a lot that happened between 1996 and you writing this book there's a way in which this book brought us back together um because I mentioned that I spent a year procrastinating. Um, and even before that year that I spent procrastinating, I had been approached about writing this book a number of times for years and years and years. I wrote an essay probably in 2002 um, that got a lot of attention. It was specifically about answering Salinger's fan mail. And um, agents and editors kept contacting me saying, do you want to turn it into a book? And it would kind of resurface, like there'd be some Salinger event and people would find my essay and be like, I found this essay. Do you want to turn it into a book? And I kept saying no. And it wasn't until like at some point in that year after I signed the contract um, that I realized that I couldn't write this book without writing about Kirill, which presented me with a bunch of different conundrums. The big two being that... I would have to be honest with myself about the biggest mistake I'd ever made. Like the biggest regret of my life was leaving Kirill. Um, and I did not know how to make this mistake better. And I think I had spent a lot of my adult life, probably like my whole adult life, punishing myself for this. Like I married someone kind of quickly, who was totally wrong for me, I think, because I thought it would allow me to kind of forget that I had made this mistake and redeem the mistake and create a life that looked shiny and perfect to the outside world. And then I pretty quickly realized that marriage was wrong and, you know, actually called my mother and said, I made a huge mistake. I don't like, I don't want to do this. Why did I do this? You know, this is within a few days of getting married. And my mother said, well, you've made your bed. You have to lie in it. I just didn't know how to make it better. Obviously, I could have just called him and been like, hey, I made a mistake, <laughs> but I didn't. Somehow I didn't. I somehow, again, maybe I saw myself as a character in an Edith Wharton book who had this tragic mistake in my past and I had to spend my whole life being punished for it. And Gerald and I stayed in touch um, throughout the years. And there were actually moments before I had kids where I thought, you know, should I leave my husband for Carol? I don't know. And um, we never had an affair or anything, but he would come to New York, um, you know, for performances and what have you. And um, we would spend time together. And I, you know, he was my best friend. And I just felt he was the only person in the world where I felt at peace when I was with him. Um, and Anyway, years and years went by, you know, he mar got married too to someone also totally wrong for him. And his wife and my husband both were very aware of our connection to each other. And they basically banned us from speaking to each other. And my husband actually monitored my emails secretly and monitored my phone calls to make sure that I wasn't in touch with Kirill, which if that sounds crazy and emotionally abusive, it was. And so... Whenever there would be a crisis, you know, I would want to talk to him. And then we would sort of have these strange coincidences 
where we would sort of run into each other and we would sort of frantically be in touch. And then one of our spouses would go crazy and be like, I know I heard, you know, you had a two hour conversation with him or what have you. So anyway, much more stuff happened, but eventually I ran into him, um, in the lobby of the Sheraton in Boston, back in back Bay, I was in town for a conference and he is not a writer. He's a composer, but this was this huge writer's conference that like 15,000 people go to. And I was meeting a friend to go to a party and there was Kirill in the lobby. And I thought, what is he doing here? That can't be him. And I felt like I was going to die actually. Um, like I was going to pass out in the middle of this lobby and I didn't know what to do. And I kind of hid a little bit. And then of course he saw me and was like, what are you doing here? And he stood up and um, I stood up and he hugged me and I said, how are you? And he said, I am not good. You know, I, I can live without you, but I just can't be happy without you. I actually couldn't speak and I just kind of started crying very quietly. Um, I, we were surrounded by writers that I know from all over the country. And, you know, I was, it was just kind of crazy. And so to make a long story slightly shorter, we, you know, got back together. I left my husband, I took my kids and we got back together and we've been together for eight years now and we have a daughter together and we're really happy. Woohoo! What was it like turning My Salinger Year into a movie? How do you even go about turning a book into a movie? Do people ask you to, or did you pitch it to people? How did the whole process go and what was it like? Yeah, you know, there are a bunch of different ways a book can be turned into a movie. There didn't used to be. There used to basically be one way, which was that, you know, someone, like usually a big studio, sometimes a small indie production company, um, optioned your book which basically means they give you some money it used to be like i mean we're talking like 20 years ago it used to be a very large amount of money you know i don't even know like a hundred thousand dollars a few hundred thousand dollars now it's not that much money things have changed really radically um they give you some money and what they're buying is the right to develop a movie based on your book and so in my case, what happened was, um, I mean, well, first of all, initially the book was actually optioned just based on the proposal for it by a different production company. Um, there was a screenwriter attached to it, a great female screenwriter named um, Emma Forrest, who really got the story. Um, she wrote a screenplay actually before I had even written the book, turned it in, and the producers didn't like it and fired her. And the deal kind of fell apart, like it kind of languished. And that is what happens to like nine out of 10 books that are optioned, honestly, like the excitement about the book dies down or some little piece of the production deal falls apart and then it languishes. So eventually the book came out and my film agent said, you know, that old option is about to expire. So let's just let it expire. Normally they go to the company and they're like, hey, your option's about to expire. Don't you want to renew it? And they often do because they think like, oh, we can revive this. We already paid money for it. And then they have to pay you more money. Um, and so agents want more money. So they try to revive it. But she felt like, you know, this book came out and it's been like pretty popular. So I think I could resell it to someone else who's going to do a better job. Like we'll have more options now. So 
we did have a bunch of options. There were like some much bigger, much like pretty big production companies who wanted to do it, who were excited about it. Like one of them was like one of the creators of Gossip Girl. And like also there was really a wide range of people interested. And we decided to go with um, the filmmaker, the director who eventually made it, whose name is Philippe Falardeau, um, who had been nominated for an Oscar a few years before for a wonderful French language film called Monsieur Lazare um, that I loved. And he had just recently directed um, a film called The Good Lie with Reese Witherspoon that I also loved. And he was the one person who like flew to Boston to meet me and we spent a whole day together. This director is based in Montreal and he actually has his own production company. He has producers that he's worked with on all his films. So he in Canada is hugely famous and in French Canada, French language Canada, he's like a celebrity. And he had been making these kind of critically lauded films in Canada for years, these French language films. And then he had this breakthrough film um, that was a big hit in the US, like a big indie hit. And suddenly he was being courted by big Hollywood studios to direct, you know, like, I don't know, like the Lion King sequel and like all sorts of things. Um, and he actually read my Salinger year on his own. Um, he picked it up at the airport on his way to vacation, like his Christmas vacation when that year, the year it came out, read it and thought like, this would make a good movie. Um, and and so he, just by pure coincidence, contacted my agent just as she was sending it out to production companies. And he, by that point, you know, he had lived, so by the time he met with me, he had lived with this book for four or five months and he had a whole notebook filled with ideas. And I just loved him. I just thought he seemed great. Why is my Salinger year a story that needed to be told? What led me to realize that it could be a story was the realization that there was something universal about the story, that it was about, you know, how do you become, like, how do you become a writer? How do you, how does this happen for you when you're not from a world in which that's just a normal thing to do? Um, and I, I realized that there were, that the city was kind of, stocked with thousands and thousands of women in the same position and that it wasn't just my little story that it was a larger story yeah the last question I normally ask people is where can we find you on the internet you can find me on Instagram that is my favorite social media platform um I'm on Twitter and Facebook intermittently but um on um Facebook and Instagram I'm just my name Joanna Rakoff um, and on Twitter, I'm Jay Rakoff, but I'm very boring on Twitter. So better to find me on Instagram. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Bee Podcast with your host, Sage Lally. If you liked today's episode, be sure to leave us a review. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Your story has the power to help others. If you step out in boldness and have the bravery to tell it, there are people here who will listen. You just have to speak. That's all for now. See you next time. Bye.